and Miss Ella did such a great job reading scripture for us. That's what you call equal time because uh, the passage that we have today talks about husbands and wives, and, and there's nothing in there about the kids. So I thought we needed to get that worked in there as well. And Ella did a great job. And as she, as was in the passage that she read for us, it's the it's the commandment that comes with a promise. And so it's certainly something that we we need. And speaking of kids ministry, uh, our daughter McKenna uh, serves in kids ministry. And last week she was so excited when she got in the car after church. She said, "Dad," she said. The most I've ever had in the two- to four-year-old group was six, and, and today I had 12. Is that great? Is that not a yay God thing? I was so, yeah, praise the Lord. So I'm like, you know, even in the midst of, a, of you know, the, the, all the events that we're going through in the world around us and such, uh, God is growing his church, and so yay, yay God. So we're in a, a series, a three-week series called Unconditional Love. It's based on, uh, on some passages out of 1 Peter. We're making our way through the book of 1 Peter. Uh, we, we had um, the unmistakable, unmistakable characteristics in the first series that we went through, and now we've moved into the unconditional love and, uh, that we have uh, as Christians. If, we're, if we are bearing the name Christ, we have to have an unconditional love for everyone. So last week we talked about unconditional love in the community and what that looks like. And today we're going to talk about unconditional love in the home. The hardest people to act lovingly toward and to get along with the most are often the people with whom we love the most and who we are the closest to. It's the people that we live with under the same roof or share a small dorm room with at, at a college or university. It's the people that we work side by side with in the office or on the, on the work site with that sometimes we tend to treat the worst and struggle the most to have, have peace. Peter was one of the two disciples for whom Jesus was the closest to, I would say. Peter worded our so-called confession of faith. Who do men say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God, you're my Lord and my Savior. And Jesus said, you're right, Simon, your name is Peter Rock, and on this foundation I will build my, my church. Peter was the one, uh, one of the ones in the, in the garden praying with Jesus. He, he was given the keys to unlocking the kingdom of God to the Jews and to the Gentiles, Acts 2 and Acts 10. He was one of the first to see the empty tomb, and although John ran on ahead and got there first, uh, you know, Peter went barging right on into the tomb, examining the evidence of its emptiness. However, Peter was a lot of work. <laughs> he was a lot of work for Jesus. In the final days of Jesus' life on earth, as he was facing an arrest, an unjust trial, physical torture, uh, the most gruesome execution of the day, crucifixion by being nailed to a wooden cross, Right when Jesus needed him the most, Peter was a handful. He chopped off an ear of one of the soldiers during Jesus' arrest. Jesus had to put the ear back on the soldier and heal the soldier and reprimand, Jesus, or reprimand Peter right there in front of everyone. The disciples were supposed to scatter, but Peter disobeyed that and followed Jesus and ended up where he wasn't supposed to be. And in that setting, he denies even knowing Jesus three times, a prediction Jesus had made to Peter when Peter says, I'll never deny you even if I have to die for you. And, and Jesus was like, really, Peter? Before morning, before the rooster crows, before the alarm clock sounds, before the rooster crows, three, you will have denied me three times. And sure enough, that's exactly what what Peter did, and in one of those times, using strong language. 
But after the resurrection, as Jesus appears to the disciples, he takes Peter aside and he asks him three times the same question, somewhat annoying perhaps to Peter as, as he's being asked, Peter, do you love me? Well, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know all things. Of course I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Restoration for this imperfect disciple, Peter. Jesus meets us where we are. Loves us too much to just leave us there. Sees our potential beyond our weaknesses and allows us to be a part of the building up of his kingdom. And that's a pretty incredible thing. I'm sure that in our private moments, if we had a notebook and we jotted down all of our weaknesses and insecurities, all of the times that we have fallen short, the times in which we have disappointed the church and disappointed the Lord and even disappointed ourselves, it would be quite a list. None of us sees ourselves as worthy of the calling of following Christ, and yet we're called to follow him. None of us sees our sins as forgivable, and yet the blood of Jesus Christ washes them all clean. All of us are called by him, and all of us are loved by him, and he demonstrates this unconditional love for us, and then calls us to love one another with that same unconditional love. That means everybody we come in contact with in the community around us. It means those that are difficult to be in line with at the grocery store. It, it means our governing officials. Everywhere we are called to love unconditionally. And in the home, that's no different. And there is a consistent theme throughout this, uh, this section, uh, this series, and that is the purpose of bringing people closer to Jesus, not pushing them further away. In the community, as we show the love of Christ, we draw people closer, closer to him. In, in the home, within the family, as we show love to one another, in all relationships, we, we bring an unbelieving spouse, for instance, or an unbelieving master or employer closer to the Savior. Jesus demonstrates this kind of love for us. As we love like Jesus loves, we go on a faith journey into greater spiritual depths. Deeper faith demands that we show others unconditional love. And that's the theme of this, this middle series through the book of 1 Peter. Love unconditionally. The kind of radical love that Jesus has for each of us, he demands us to have for others. And just as the purpose of loving the community is to win people to Christ, even in the home, we want to we do that as well. That unconditional love. Do your actions in the community and do your actions in your home lead people closer to Jesus or drive them farther away? Make no mistake about it. The radical love that we're commanded to have is the kind that, doesn't, that isn't deserved. Hence the word unconditional, not based on conditions. I'm glad that uh, I don't get from God what I deserve. <laughs> Aren't you? <laughs> because I don't deserve love and I don't deserve forgiveness, but that's what grace and mercy are all about. I don't deserve it, but it's given to me freely. And I'm so glad I don't get what I deserve. But it's difficult for me sometimes 
to turn around and to show that same kind of unconditional love to others when I maybe don't feel like they deserve it. The relationships in today's passages at the end of chapter 2 and beginning of chapter 3 of 1 Peter uh, illustrate for us what unconditional love looks like. And we'll be using these examples of these relationships for some practical applications on how we can live it out in our own homes. The first example is that between servants toward their unjust, unfair masters or bosses. Uh, the lesson there, serve others even when it's not fair. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, beginning with verse 18 through the rest of the chapter. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, oh, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to, to, you have, for, uh, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Now, this servant-master relationship for the Christians receiving this letter was probably more in line with an employer-employee kind of relationship today, or, or maybe like a tenant farmer who works the farm uh, in exchange for getting to live on the farm, in exchange for kind of rent and food, perhaps, and maybe with enough extra to work toward owning their own chunk of land that they might be independent someday. It groups well with the inside-the-home relationships because these servants would have lived in their employer's homes or on their employer's uh, properties with them and would have interacted with their families a lot. I don't know if it seems a little hokey, but I kind of think of Alice from the, the Brady Bunch show. She was a servant. She was a, she was a maid. She was a cook. She did some of the driving. She did the grocery shopping, stopping by the meat shop quite a bit there, you know, um, if you're familiar with the show. But she was more than just a hired hand. And this wasn't slave labor. She lived with the Bradys and was part of their family. You get the impression that she, she didn't just cook the meals, but she also ate with the family. We, we have episodes where she went on vacation with them and so forth. She was a, a part of the family. Uh, from one-third to a half of the population of the Roman Empire uh, were slaves or servants at the time this letter was written. So it was a common thing. And a lot of people, a lot of Christians, found themselves in the role of, of this servant. It's believed that Christians may have made up an even higher percentage of that one-third to a half. And so this letter would have been very applicable to them. If you were a first-century Christian and you were serving in the role of a servant you would want to know, how does my obedience to Christ correlate with my, my work ethic? I have this unjust, unfair supervisor, so to speak, this master who doesn't treat me fairly, the master of the, of, of the, uh, the, 
the manner here is, is, is harsh on me. What's my responsibility? And so Peter answers that, hey, first and foremost, you're a Christian. And as such, that plays out in how you treat your supervisor, your master. They needed to know what was expected of them. Um, and so I ask you today, how about you? Do you work for an unbelieving boss or a boss that doesn't seem to be a Christ follower, even if he or she claims to be a Christian? Do you perhaps have clients or customers who are hard to get along with? In your role as a Christ follower, you are to be just a model servant, provide great service, and do your work as if for the Lord, not for man. Matthew 5, 10 through 12 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Romans 8, 17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, per provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If we're following Christ, then we are going to be loving unconditionally to people who are unjust and unfair toward us. His whole earthly ministry seemed to deal with people who were spreading lies about him, treating him unfairly, not being courteous to him, not being hospitable to him, him having nowhere to lay his head, and yet he time and time again showed us unconditional love in the scriptures. It's in those unfair situations that we get to shine the brightest. Do you ever feel taken for granted? Serve anyway. Shine the brightest when, when you are feeling like you're in the darkest of moments. Because if you, if you shine bright when everything is going well and you're being treated well and you're being courteous and working hard because you're getting something for it, well, you, of course you should then. That's no credit to you. But when you are treated unfair and you show the love of Christ, that's your opportunity. That's your moment. Now you can say, oh, woe is me, and you can whine and cry about it, and you can vent a, a little, perhaps. But that's your moment. First and foremost, see it as your opportunity to shine and to be like Jesus. Uh, don't, be, don't be obvious about it to where they're like, why are you acting this way? <laughs> what are you up to? But just serve others because it's the right thing to do. I'd widen this range to include those in your neighborhood. Uh, we live in a, a subdivision on a cul-de-sac, and, and you know, we have covenants that we have to live by and so forth. And some of them I'm glad they exist, and other ones I'm not so sure about. But if I'm going to choose to live there, I want to be a model neighbor. I'd widen the range to include uh, the college dorm room. It's not going to take long, hopefully, <laughs> Before your college roommate or roommates figure out that you are from a Christian home, that you claim to be a Christ follower, and your faith may make you seem intellectually weak to them, and they may scoff at it. And if you get up early on Sunday morning and, and you go to worship when they choose to sleep in after a late night party kind of thing, they're going to maybe want to ostracize you for that. But you love them anyway. Be the best roommate. On the school bus, 
when you're riding to and from school and the paper wads are flying and people are treating you unfairly. Show the love of Christ in the locker room. I'm not talking about a bullying situation where you're being abused and you're just letting it happen, but handle it in the right way. Seek justice, but also show love. With clients, with customers you serve, shine the brightest when the actions are the darkest. Give glory to God in it. Serve him by serving them. Philippians 1.29 says, For it, was, it has been granted to you for the sake for." Let me start over. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And none of us have suffered at the hands of unjust people quite to the extent that Jesus has. And yet he tells us, take up your cross daily and follow me. The word example in verse 21 was used for a Greek tablet that students would use to trace their Greek letters from alpha to omega. And by doing so, they would get better and better at writing Greek letters and words that look like the standard. When you trace something enough, then your own letters look like the real thing. Jesus is our standard, our example, that we trace our lives over by living the way he lived. We get better and better at living like him toward others. It's not ours to hold a grudge anyway. Mark 11, verses 25 through 26 says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Romans 12, 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. First example, servants to master. Second example, wives toward unbelieving husbands. This lesson rep, uh, res, uh, shows us that we need to respect others even when it's undeserved. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6 says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without, without a word by the conduct of their lives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning by external, the braiding of hair and the putting on gold jewelry, the clothing that you wear, be, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Notice that this passage is directed to the wives to do it on their own. This is not meant to be some kind of marital relationship where a man makes himself the king of the castle and condescendingly treats his wife as if she's less than him. This is a choice that she makes. And the reason, again, the purpose, and the reader of this letter from Peter is, is thinking about their unbelieving spouse. They're first century Christians, and they have chosen to be a follower of Christ, and yet they're married to someone who isn't. What do they do about that? And so Peter tells them, just subject yourself. Make yourself the servant. It's kind of that idea of going the extra mile. You're familiar with how that, that expression came to be. If a Roman soldier uh, demanded someone carry their, their backpack for them, they were to carry it two miles. That was a requirement. At any moment, they could say, you, carry my backpack. And you'd carry it for them two miles. 
And the solution to that is don't fight them over it. Carry it a third mile. You do the required one and two, but throw in an extra mile. You go the extra mile. Go the extra mile, wives. Uh, you th- we, we may think that we are so uh, smart and, and so uh, crafty in how we control things, but we, men, we have an ego that's fairly weak. And, and it's been said that you know, the, the man is the head of the house, but the woman is the neck, and the neck can turn the head any which way she wants. <laughs> if you want to really get your husband, you show him the love of Christ, even when it's undeserved. And we probably don't have a lot of people in here today who have an unbelieving spouse. And praise God for that. But you may find yourself counseling someone who's a new Christian. That you've won to Christ whose husband isn't a believer. And you can counsel that person. Hey, if you show the love of Christ, even when it's not deserved. In fact, that's your opportunity. That's your moment. You make yourself a servant. A sub, you submit to him and you're going to end up leading him closer to Christ, not pushing him farther away. And it is, it's said in here that it would be without a word. Not preachy. Not, rah, 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 you should go to church. And not necessarily pasting scripture everywhere that puts them in their place and shows them where they're wrong. Without a word, the actions will win them over. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 9. It said, for though I am free from all... I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those who are under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. You want to share with them in its blessings? Whether it's an employer, an employee treating an unbelieving employer uh, with, uh, with uh, love, whether it's a spouse treating an unbelieving spouse or an unfair spouse with love, you want to share in the blessings of the Lord with them? You treat them with the same kind of love, the unconditional love that Jesus has given you. Now, the mention of outer beauty is, is in here, and it's not because the outer beauty is bad. We'd be lying if we didn't say we appreciate the outer beauty. But it's about the inner beauty as well. And, you know, I have to be careful with that sometimes, too, because and on Facebook, I might make a post. Hey, wow, that's, she, what a beautiful dress. She's, but so often, we need to focus on the fact, and she's just as beautiful on the inside, right? Dads, when you tell your daughters, oh, sweetheart, you look so beautiful, make sure you tell them, and the best part, you're just as beautiful on the inside, Right? And husbands, we can appreciate so much. It's human nature. God wired us up this way. The physical beauty of our wives, and we can be physically attractive to them. And that's great, and we should be, and, it's a bl- and there's a reason God made them pretty. <laughs> there's a reason God gave us eyes. There's a reason why we're, there's the attraction. But so much more meaningful is the beauty of the heart. Are they beautiful on the inside? Are they full of the Holy Spirit? 
Are they, is their head full of God's word, memorized and, 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 and at their disposal? That is, that is the truest of all beauty. Well, husbands don't get it totally off. Here we come, our third example, husbands. The lesson here, honor others for their true value. 1 Peter 3, verse 7 says, Likewise, each of these start off with likewise. You kind of know it's coming, right? Likewise. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman, it says, as the weaker vessel, since they are the heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, there are a couple of different ways to translate or to apply the word weaker. It could mean weaker vessel. They have a, a weaker physical body than, than men. Most women are, you know, would, would not be as strong or could bench press as much as their husbands, so to speak. And that would be true. But I rather like the interpretation that the weaker means more precious, kind of like we sometimes use the word delicate. Uh, if you're looking at jewelry, for instance, the word precious, and they'll say this is a, these are semi-precious stones over here. These are the precious stones. Make sure you get these insured. These have a lot of value and a lot of worth. You don't want to just wear these to anything. You don't want to let your, your kids wear these around in the playground outside. Th this is a real, these are precious stones. With food sometimes, and you're at a nice restaurant, and something seems real expensive. Maybe it's escargot or something, and it's like, ooh, snails, or caviar, ooh, fish eggs, you know. And somebody says, well, you have to understand, these are a delicacy. That doesn't mean they're more breakable or weaker or in, you know, superior. It just means they're more special, worth more, have more value. And husbands, we are to honor our wives in an understanding way, showing honor to them as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with us in the grace of life. We're given a so that here, another Hina passage. Where the other ones all have talked about all along, and even next week we're talking about drawing people closer to the Lord, not pushing them further away, winning them to Christ. Here it is, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Oh my goodness. The value of having a praying wife. Someone in the spiritual journey with you, praying for you and loving you. Wives have needs when you focus on their needs, when you focus on their strengths, when you are strong where they are weak, when you know what their goals are and their desires, and when you honor them in that way, you're fulfilling this, this passage here of showing honor because of great value. I started off sharing a, a verse from uh, Romans chapter 5. Uh, Romans, where it, it talks about the unconditional love that Jesus has for us. So while we were still sinners, Christ came, Christ died for us. Not once we got good enough or smart enough or we begged enough, but he demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, he came and he died for us. Here's what the rest of that little passage says. Romans 5, verses 9 through 11 says, Since, therefore, we have been now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that also, we rejoice in God, in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 
There's great benefit, great practical application in this unconditional love. We're supposed to love, show love in the community. We're supposed to show love in the home. And next week we'll talk about love in the church and how it brings us closer to God rather than pushing us further away from him. Pray with me. Father God, I thank you for your amazing love and for allowing us to be here together today to sing praises to you, to hear your scriptures read, uh, God, to, uh, to be able to give sacrificially of our tithes and our offerings, God, to you. Lord, it is good to be together, and I'm thankful, Father, that those who are able and feel comfortable doing so today have gathered here and assembled here in your name to worship and to praise you. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, God. It is our greatest delight uh, to be a part of your church, to be a part of your family, to be unconditionally loved and used by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.